some of you are aware of this, some of you not, but uh, some of you know that I'm a musician and uh, that uh, uh, I was in a, before I had started college and went into ministry, I had a band that put two albums out. In fact, this past year, uh, some magazine or whatever released a thing that my band was one of the 10 best Christian metal bands of all time. That so was very happy about that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because uh, you can you can pretty much be in a top 10 list as long as you keep narrowing it down. Like it's a the Christian metal whose name starts with S who came out around 1993. So you just keep narrowing it down, but you can always make a top 10 list. Uh, but anyway, the whole the whole point of that is is to tell you um, is that music has always been a big part of my life. It still is a big part of my life. Um, but when my wife and I were getting married, um, I actually sold my uh, 1983 black Gibson Les Paul standard um, to pay for the security deposit on our first uh, uh, first apartment. And it was like this really traumatic moment, um, because if you're a musician, you know that like, you know, your 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 instrument is, is like part of your identity. And I remember when I sold that thing, I mean, it was like I had sold it. it like I, had, I took the money and then I still had it. I'm like, here you go. And take, well, you get, Bob, you're going to have to let it go. And it was this really hard uh, moment for me. And um, I, now I've told the story several times. Some of you might have been here. Oh, yeah, I've heard you tell this story before. If I go, sometimes when I go speak at other places, I'll tell that story. And uh, the last time I told it, uh, I was speaking somewhere and we left and, and uh, she said, my wife turns to me and she said, listen, you sold a guitar, you got me, get over it. And that was pretty much that. You know, I was like, oh, OK, maybe I'll do that. Uh, well, anyway, I, I tell you that because um, four years ago when we celebrated our 10th anniversary, my wife bought me a black Gibson Les Paul standard as my uh, as our 10 year anniversary present. Uh, it was awesome. Uh, I got her flowers. And uh, so it's like it's awesome. Uh, it was awesome. And I'm telling you, it was like I'm outside of the birth of my children. I think it was the happiest moment of my life. And uh, I remember when it when it showed up, you know, and I opened up the box and it was it was awesome. And um, now here's the thing. Some if you're a musician, this is like and you have kids. One of the things some guys do is they keep like, all the all the musicians, like all the, the instruments, you know, under lock and key. And, and I've actually taken a different approach. I actually keep the instruments out. So if you come over to our house, um, I have my guitars, my bass, all that is out in the living room because uh, I want my kids to be around instruments. I want them to strum the guitar and, you know, they know how to hold a pick and they know how to strum the, the, the thing and all that. Because I, I want them to pick up an instrument at some point in their life and hopefully I'll be able to teach them to play guitar or whatever instrument they want to uh, they want to pick up, but um, the whole thing is they've got to be they've got to be careful, and that's the thing that we we talk about. And, and the other reason I, I leave the stuff out is because um, we do concerts at our house um, every week. We do sold out concerts. Um, we do because uh, there's only one chair, and so once when someone sits there, it's sold out. So, but um, uh, I play guitar. Uh, Mia sings. Uh, Xander does background vocals, and then Carrie is the audience. And that, that's kind of how we do it at our place. And uh, we only do Disney songs. Um, so we do, um, like we do songs from the Tangled soundtrack, uh, which, you know, Mia puts on like the Rapunzel, uh, dress and we do that. Uh, we, we just added a song in our set. Uh, we started doing Kiss the Girl from, uh, The Little Mermaid. Yeah, we started doing that. Uh, great. Hey, all right. Come over sometime. Uh, we started doing, uh, my son really, this was an ad in addition for Xander. We started, do, if you have kids, we started doing the theme song for Special Agent Oso. If you know that, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty cool. And then our closer, this is what we close the show with, is uh, the theme song for the show Jake and the Neverland Pirates. That just brings the house down. I mean, 
when I say everybody, just my wife. I mean, we go crazy when that's done. And uh, my daughter doesn't even sing that one because we're all into it. She just screams. It's like we're in a punk band by the end of, yeah, you know. It's like we went from being a Disney band to like Black Flag. I don't like some, for the four of you who know who Black Flag is. Uh, so, so, Wikipedia, Black Flag. Anyway, uh, so, so here's the thing. Well, the other day I, I come home from the office and, my, uh, and uh, I go to grab my, my guitar when I got home playing with the kids and uh, I wanted to play guitar, so I'm in the living room. I grab the guitar, and uh, the, string, the strings are like spaghetti. You know, like, what's going on here? So I look, and one of the machine heads are broken. By the way, the machine heads are the gears that, that actually make the strings tighter or looser. And I'm like, well, what happened? And Carrie's like, oh, I was going to tell you about this, and I totally forgot. Um, but uh, Xander knocked over your Les Paul and broke one of the machine heads. And, um, and now, when this happened during the day, Carrie said, man, Poppy's really going to be upset when he hears about this. And then Mia turns to her and says, no, he's not. And she's like, yes, he is. And she says, no, he's not. He'll say this. And this is Mia. She'll go, no, 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 he won't be upset. He'll say, it's okay. I know it was an accident. Like, in what world does that actually sound like me? That's the first thing I want to know. Secondly, I sound like one of the Muppets. So, So she says that, and then I get home. And um, uh, I didn't exactly say, um, yeah, it's okay, I thought it was an I didn't exactly say that. Uh, we, I was saying more like, you know, people not respecting other people's property and something like that, you know. Um, anyway, so we kind of have more of a conversation along those lines. Well, I didn't respond the way Mia wanted me to respond. She starts crying. She runs to her room. Uh, you know, my son has no idea what's going on. He's just jumping up and down. And uh, and then Carrie says, listen, we had this whole conversation and you were supposed to say a certain thing and then you didn't. And that's why she's upset because she was sure that you were going to react a certain way. So I go, I say, oh, I think I know how to fix this. I go into her room and um, and I say, Mia, um, I sit on the bed and she's like crying on the bed and I say, sit up and. And I say, listen, the guitar fell, but I want you to know something. And she says, what's that? And I said, it's okay. I know it was an accident. <laughs> Just like that. And she starts to laugh. I start to laugh. We hug. And then, and then we have a very serious conversation about respecting the property of others. And then, um, and <laughs> now here's the thing. Now here's the thing. Is that, um, and, and I didn't realize this, that as a, when I became a parent, that, that my kids are expecting me to act and react a certain way. Um, as, as a husband, my wife, based on previous actions, right, my wife is expecting me to act and react a certain way. Um, the same thing is true in your life with your friends, with your family, with your co-workers, with uh, your boss or your employees, which wherever you are in that in that world, um, that based on your history and how you have acted and reacted in the past is how they're expecting you to act and react in the present and in the future. Now, here's the thing that's so important, and this is what we're going to spend our time together drilling down on uh, this, this, this afternoon, is that as a Christian, um, I'm expecting God, you are expecting God, to act and react a certain way. But here's the problem with that sometimes, is that if we don't really know who God is, we will expect God to act and react in a way that really is inconsistent with His character. Because what we believe about God is more of a caricature of who God is, more of a distortion of who God is, than who God really is in character and in substance. And in Romans chapter 3, which is where we're going to be this morning, so if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open it there. Um, What's going to happen is this, is that 
Paul is going to, based on what we've learned so far in this study that we're calling Inside Out, uh, because transformation has to start somewhere, is what Paul is preempting some questions that these Romans are going to ask about God. And what he does is, as he, as they, he asks, uh, he says, well, here's what you're going to say. And he starts kind of creating the argument that they're, that they're going to have. It tells us a lot about what they believe about God. And, and the reason why this is so important for us is because if we don't really know who God is, we'll never trust God enough for him to change our lives. If we don't actually know, really know who God is, here's what will happen, is that we'll never be secure enough in our relationship with God to open ourselves up to him, to really allow him to do the work that he wants to do. For us to be able to trust him, even though what he's asking us to do doesn't make human sense. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through these questions uh, together and, and what, what I, we're going to really look at three aspects of God that maybe we haven't realized. And uh, because if we're going to experience transformation from the inside out, the place where that begins is in the place of really knowing God, the real God. Not what pe- other people have said about God or other people think about God, but who God is really like. So look at chapter 3 of Romans, if you would, in verse 1. Here's where we'll begin. It says, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make their the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. But it is written that by your words, you may you may be justified and you may overcome when you are judged. But what if our righteousness demonstrates the right? What if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God? What shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why then am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the first thing that I want to share with you when it comes to to knowing God from this passage. And that is this. And that is that God is faithful even when we're faithless. God is faithful even when we're faithless. Now, let me, if I can, illustrate it uh, this way. If we all took a trip uh, to Yosemite National Park um, and because we wanted to see Old Faithful, um, and uh, here's a picture of, uh, of Old Faithful. I've never been there, but it's one of the things on my list. You know, Old Faithful goes off every 92 minutes. Um, you know, it's, it's an incredible thing. And uh, that I mean, one time I was talking about uh, Old Faithful, that, that geyser. Um, and uh, this was years and years ago. And um, I was teaching and there was uh, this, this person in the front row that was um, uh, older, very much older and uh like really older all right um like hey what was it like hanging out with isaiah kind of older uh you know what i mean so they're older and i was looking at them as i was talking about old faithful and i was going to say that old geyser old faithful and i'm like you know that old geezer uh old faithful and i was looking right at them and they were looking right at me and um there's no recovering from that and my face turned beet red and uh, never saw them again. It was weird. Anyway, uh, so um, <laughs> where was I? And uh, so here's the thing: the, you have Old Faithful here, right? It goes off every 92 minutes. 
Imagine we show up and they say, man, you just went off. You just missed it. But it'll, you know, in an hour and a half, it'll, it'll go off. And you say, all right, well, then, then we hang out and we're there for an hour. Seventy minutes. Seventy five minutes. Eighty minutes. And we're like, is this thing ever going to go off? You know what? I'm going to the gift shop. And then we say, you know, and, and, and then because really, why go anywhere unless you're going to spend some time at the gift shop? Um, and so you go. So we just say, you know what? Forget it. This thing's never going off. And we go to the gift shop instead of hanging out. Now, here, here's the thing. Will my unfaithfulness, will our, would our unfaithfulness keep old faith from going off every 92 minutes? No. Instead, in fact, the only thing that will change is my ability to experience the faithfulness or, or not. And that's the very same thing, the very same truth that Paul is trying to teach these, these Romans. Because one of the things that he says in the, in the beginning of this is, um, in, 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 as he's starting to ask these questions in, in chapter 3, he says, uh, because in chapter 2, if you weren't there, uh, he talks about, well, what's the point of circumcision if it's really just about faith? He goes, well, and, and because he says it profits nothing. Because um, it's really about faith and really believing and really doing. And, and, and so the question becomes in chapter 3, so if... What is there any advantage of actually um, being a Jew and being circumcised and all that? And he says, yeah, of course, because we were given the oracles of God. The Jewish people were entrusted with the scriptures. But then he says this is, yeah, but what about some of those who didn't believe? I mean, does that affect the faithfulness of God if these people were unfaithful? And he says, not at all. Their lack of faithfulness doesn't affect the faithfulness of God one iota. Because there's a passage that, and it's in your notes in um, in Second Timothy chapter two. It says, "This is a faithful saying: For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself." You see, the idea is this: in the, it's in our relationship with God as well. If we aren't faithful, God is still faithful. The only thing that changes is our ability to experience the faithfulness of God. And that's true in any area of our life. It's true when it comes to our relationships. It's true when it comes to finances or career or your family or you name the area and aspect of your life. God has laid out his will and what's best for us. And we can choose to obey him and experience the faithfulness of God. Or we can choose not to obey him. But here's the the key is that God is still going to be faithful. Why? Because he can't deny himself. He is faithful. That's who he is at the very core uh, of his being. And listen, our lack of faithfulness to God does not make his promises any less faithful. They simply don't take effect until we put them into practice. And one of the things that happens is, is that we just don't, uh, we think, well, you know, and we start creating this idea about God or, or who God is. Um, and, it's, and, here's the, and here's the thing that really is the truth of what the scriptures teach, is that God is faithful. Even when we're not faithful, God is still faithful. And it's like, well, God, why is God doing this to me? And not why God, it's not, has nothing to do with that at all. It's that if I actually do what God wants me to do, then I'm going to experience the faithful blessing of God in my life. And if I don't, then many times I'll experience the repercussions of my own actions. Well, he goes on in the conversation, and we'll come back to this idea, but here's what he says in verse 9. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that all are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. 
They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. The mouth, their mouth, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, whose uh, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way and the way of peace. They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. If you pause there and give me your attention, here's the second thing. The, the, second, the first point is God is faithful even when we're faithless. That's one of the first things we need to know about God. The second thing we need to know is this, is that God is righteous and we are guilty. God is righteous and we are guilty. Um, one of the things that you see in this passage is he just goes on and on and on. Um, and he says there's none righteous, nobody understands, nobody seeks after God. And he takes, from verses 10 through 18, he just rattles off all these passages in the Old Testament um, when he goes from Psalm 51 to Psalm 14 to Psalm 53 to Ecclesiastes. He uh, quotes from Proverbs, he quotes from Isaiah. And I mean, he just starts rattling them off. Um, uh, all these passages that basically talk about this, that it, if, if it comes to uh, our ways, uh, our words, uh, our, our practices, all of these things, our will, all of this, we're, we're, we're going astray and that, that, that the humanity is guilty. Now, let me um, let me explain it this way. I don't know if I've ever talked to you guys about my deep love for double stuffed Oreo cookies. I, I'm really not sure if we've ever taken the time to really delve into that impo- all important subject. Um, but I really do love uh, double stuffed Oreo cookies. Um, in fact, I love them so much, I can't even have them in my house anymore. And that's a personal decision that I've made. I do not impose that on you. But I personally cannot have them in my house because if I have double stuffed Oreo cookies in my house, I will eat nothing else. I will eat them for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and I will pepper some uh, snacks in between. Um, well, years ago, I spoke at this church and uh, they gave me, well, I, I, they, um, I'd spoken to this church a couple times before, and uh, one of the things that they did was uh, they, um, so they would do the worship, and one of the staff members or pastors would come up, and they would, um, you know, get, they gave me like this really nice introduction, you know, and Bob's this and that, and then I'd come up, and everybody would clap, and it was really nice, and then uh, they say, but we want to just give you this, because uh, I had talked about my love of Double stuff Oreo cookies. I, I try to share that wherever I go. This is my part of my message. Uh, but I, I, I share. But I had mentioned a story about that, and uh, they said, "But we do want to give this to you as a gift." And it was two giant bags of double stuff Oreo cookies. It's really the nicest gift any church has ever given me. And um, and so what happens is is that um, now I brought them home. Carrie didn't come with me to this trip, and it was in like Central Florida. So I drove back home uh, after the services, and uh, and she's like, "Hey, how'd it go?" And I'm like, "It was awesome." And she's like, wow, the people really connected with the message. And I'm like, well, who knows? But they gave me these huge bags of Oreo cookies. And, and, uh, and I said, I need you to do your thing with them. Now, Carrie does this thing. Now, some people, I, I, I said this in the first service, and they're like, what is this? You know, I mean, but it was just this brand new revelation. So get ready. You may want to write this down. So here's what my wife does. She'll take, like, this big tup thing of, like, a Tupperware, you know, storage thing. And she'll line the bottom with bread. And then she'll put Oreo cookies in there, and then she'll, or then she'll line the top with bread. She'll seal it, 
and then it will not be open. This is part of the key here. You do not open it for about a day. You open it back up. The bread is hard. The Oreo cookies are soft. And it's like, and I know you're like, what is this, Mr. Wizard? Is this, I'm telling you, I think this tactic was developed by NASA. Um, but it is amazing. If you like like soft Oreo cookies, this is the way to do it. So anyway, so, uh, so that I preached there on Sunday. Monday, I get up before anyone else. This is one of the few times and I'm, I'm like, whoo, I'm, I'm up, I'm up. I sneak into the kitchen, open it up, you know, and uh, sure enough, soft Oreo cookies. I have seven or eight just because I hadn't eaten breakfast. Yeah, I just needed something to get things going. And, uh, and so anyway, so then I, she wakes up. My wife sees that the seal has been broken. And she says to me, listen, you've got to pace yourself. All right, and I'm like, yeah, don't worry about it. I'm good. I mean, I'll have a few. That's it. She's like, yeah, but my definition of a few and your definition of a few are very, very different. Well, anyway, um, so there's some people come over uh, around midday or so. And, um, and so she looks and she sees that the, that supperware bin is about halfway now around lunchtime. And she's like, Bob, we talked about pacing yourself. And I'm like, listen, there's other people here. I have not eaten every Oreo here. People are just doing what they do. And uh, now someone had asked me for, hey, can I have an Oreo? And I'm like, yes, you can have one. I'm going to give you one. And you forget you ever saw this. Take the jewelry if you want. You leave the Oreos and never speak of this again. So anyway, I'm like, listen, people, other people have had one. So anyway, I'm like, yeah, you can have one too. Yeah, split it. Anyway, uh, so anyway, so here's, here's the thing. So, um, so it's probably like three in the afternoon. And uh, I sneak into the kitchen. I don't even know where Carrie is at the time. And I'm like eating a few Oreos and I'm getting put and kind of getting myself stocked up. So I'm going to go somewhere else. And then, uh, uh, well, you ever have this feeling like you're being watched? Uh, like like there's 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 a presence in the room. I had that feeling. And I was like, Lord, is that you? And, and I wasn't. It wasn't. It was it was my wife. She was right there. And she had this few, she was like this, like, and I turned around, I had like five Oreo cookies in my mouth. And I had like crumbs, I had Oreo cookies in both my hands. And she's looking at me like, I had options, you know, I chose you. And I could have had others, you know what I mean? And that's kind of the, this moment, right? And, um, and, and the only thing that I could say, this is all I could, I, I, you know, and I'm, I'm not a person who's usually lost for words. And, uh, and, and I, so the only thing I could say is, I'm, and I'm, once again, I've got all these cookies in my mouth, and I go, don't judge me. And uh, that's about as much as I could muster. Now, here's, here's the thing, right? There's nothing that I could say or do. I was guilty, right? Guilty, it's over, it's done. Right, I'm red, red-handed. And here's the thing, is that in this passage that we're looking at, Paul lines up all of these passages of Scripture from verses 10 through 18 in, in Romans 3. And he just go, I mean, he just starts going off. What about this passage, and this passage, and this passage, and this passage, and this passage? He rattles off several passages to bring to point this whole thing. Is that humanity is holding the Oreo cookies in their hand. They've got, du- they're double stuffed with double stuff. And it's like, you're guilty. 
The whole point, as he says in verse 19, now that uh, so that the, the every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do. We've all been caught red handed. We are all guilty. Whether in ver- verses nine through 11, he talks about our will and verses 12 to 14, he talks about our words. And in verses 15 through 18, he talks about our ways. And that is that what we think, what we say, what we do, we are all guilty before God. And he says this, and he says, why? Because here's the fascinating thing to me. In verse 10, he says, there's none righteous, none who understands, and none who seek after God. That's it. Nobody is doing this. And the question is, why? And then he gets to the end in verse 18, and here's what he says. It's because none of them, because no one has the fear of God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, sometimes when we think of the fear of God, we have this really, um, we think of like the Tower of Terror, Like, that's the fear of God. Like, they strap you in. They bring you up. They show you all of, like, MGM Studios. They close it, and then you plunge to your death. Like, that's the fear of God. No, that's just weird. Um, You know, I don't know what that is. But the fear of God, like, in in, in a Hebrew context, is a word that can also be translated respect or reverence. Um, If you're a parent, right, you don't want your kids to be afraid of you. Right? You know, hey, honey, ah! You know, like, if you're going to, like hug them or something you know you don't want your kids to be afraid of you but you do want them to respect you you do want them to honor you and hold you in esteem and 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 that's essentially what's what's happening because here's what you know is that when your, your child wants to do something and you say to them listen don't do that you're better off doing this if they will respect you and and revere you to a degree they will take your your words will have weight and now what they were going to do because there is they have respect for what it is that you're saying and they believe that, that you are wiser than them. They will alter their way. But if there's no fear of God in, in this sense or no fear of you in the sense of no real respect or reverence, they will look at what you say and then what they think and they'll be like, well, what they say, what I say, I'm going to go ahead and do what I think. But see, what the fear of God does is that it puts God in first place. It puts God in the position that he should be in, which is in the place of him him being the master and me being the servant. Of him being Lord and us being servants of his. Whereas what he says is what we do. And that's really where the beginning of wisdom is. That's why in Proverbs, uh, Solomon would write, he would say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's why when I fear God, that is, I respect God, I, I, I revere God, and, and, and that he created everything and is infinitely wiser than I. I fear not doing what he says because I know it will, it will be a disaster. But see, when we don't fear God, we will simply do our own thing because we don't believe there will be repercussions for our actions. And that's why the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Because... If I really do respect and and fear and revere who God is, then whatever he says to me, I will do. Because I fear what would happen if I don't do it. In fact, um, in Deuteronomy 10, here's what it says. It says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways and to love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. To keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Now, here's the question that you might be thinking, and if you are, I'm I'm glad you're thinking it. And that is, um, if no one seeks God, how does anybody come to know God? Because he says that there's none who's righteous, 
None who understand and none seek after God. I mean, how is anybody coming to know God if nobody is seeking after God? Well, here's the answer to that. None is seeking after God, but here's what we have to know, is that God is the one who is seeking after you. Sometimes we get that backwards and we start thinking, well, you know, I've been seeking God my whole life and I've wanted... No, you haven't. Oh, yes, yes, I've always wanted to know God and, uh, you know... And no, you really haven't. We've maybe wanted something from God. We've maybe wanted some kind of personal enlightenment, but no one seeks after God. Instead, here's what we learn is that God is the one who all along has been seeking after us. There's a uh, there's a story in the Old Testament that that really illustrates this, that no one is seeking after God. And then what God does to capture us, to capture our hearts. Uh, It's a story of an Old Testament prophet named Hosea. Uh, Hosea is told by God to marry a prostitute uh, whose name is Gomer. And uh, the weird part is it's not only bad enough that this prophet has to marry a prostitute. Her name is Gomer. And um, and by the way, if you if you ever say like, oh, man, I never want to forget this story. because It's a good story. And you say, like, what's the story? Where's that place where God tells the prophet to marry the prostitute? You'll always remember because it's Hosea. So you always remember. Um, so anyway, um, I know that, that works. That works really well with high school groups. Uh, not so sure how it's going over here. Um, well, anyway, um, Hosea marries Gomer, and uh, she, after a time, she starts cheating on him. And uh, in fact, she starts cheating on him to the degree where she starts bearing children, and it's questionable as to whether the children are even Hosea's. And at one point in the story, uh, and if you'll read it in the first few chapters, uh, Gomer leaves Hosea, and she starts sleeping around again, and then she starts living with another guy, even while she's still married uh, to Hosea. And this guy at one point then sells Gomer into slavery. And, uh, and then God speaks to Hosea and says, um, I, I, I want you to go and, and buy her back. I want you to go buy her out of slavery. And, and if I'm Hosea, I'm thinking like, this guy's got to get the rawest deal ever as far as like prophets, you know, like there's other prophets in the Old Testament that like raise people from the dead, you know, like and then there's other guys who like, you know, they, you know, like, you know, Moses parts the Red Sea, you know, like some of these guys get to do awesome stuff. And then it's like, yes, I'm called to be a prophet. What do you want me to do, God? See that prostitute over there? Buy her a ring. Like, oh, no, come on. I can't be that. Don't you want me to like, I don't know, something better than that. Anyway, so he says, I want you to go and, and buy her back out, out of slavery. So uh, as the story goes, he he um, he takes 15 shekels of silver. He takes some barley, some wine, and he puts together the funds, which basically works out to uh, it works out to 30 shekels of silver. And um, which, by the way, you're going to want to hang on to that, um, because that was the purchase price of a slave at that time. Um, and. Uh, Hosea asks God this question, why am I doing this? And here's God's response. He says, because I want to give you a picture of my relationship with you. And I want Israel to have a picture of my relationship with Israel. In fact, in Hosea chapter three, verse one, it's in your notes. It says, then the Lord said to me, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. Uh, This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. 
You see, and then he goes, he pays the money, and he takes her home. You see, my friends, in the story, you read this, we aren't Hosea in the story. In the story, we're Gomer. We're the ones who were running away from God. We're the ones who were not seeking after God. God was the one who pursued us. God was the one who paid the price to save us, the one to, to buy us back. And see, sometimes when we think, well, I've been seeking God all my life, well, and it's not that we're purposely trying to be deceptive if, if we say that or someone who says that is purposely trying to be deceptive. It's that we just don't understand the full orb of what it is that's happening spiritually. Hosea buys Gomer for 30 pieces of silver. Do you know that's the exact amount that Jesus gets sold out for by Judas? Why? Because Jesus now takes our place. Because the Father has been pursuing us. And so he says, I, I need to pay the price of someone who's a slave so that they can be free. And so Jesus then stands in our place. And he gets sold out into slavery so that we can become the ones who are free. Well, this conversation goes on. I want you to look at verse 21. Um, and this is where we're really going to drill down here at the end. Here's what it says. It says, now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what? Law? Or of works? No. By the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he also not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law of God through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, here's the last point that I want to give you, and that is this. The thing I want you to know about God, and that is that God is gracious and we are recipients. We are the recipients of that grace. Um, let me tell you this, and then I'll um, it, this will kind of explain this very, very dense passage. Uh, before coming to start Calvary ten years ago, uh, one of the things that I was thinking about doing um, was going to graduate school and, and getting my master's in theology. And um, so I, there was a school that I wanted to go to. I submitted all my paperwork, my transcripts, my experience, application, blah blah blah, all that stuff. And um, and they were they were real. They looked at like my uh, my Bible college transcripts. They were very excited about those. You know, 3.9 GPA. I'd served for four years as an assistant pastor and an intern. And they were like, "This is really good." And they're like, "But we do want we do have a." They call me like, "We do have a couple of questions." And I'm like, "Sure, sure." And they kind of started in like, "Hey, we love this. We love that. This is really good." And they said, um, "We just wanted to know what happened like in your first two years of of uh, college." Um, and I'm like, well, what do you mean? And they're like, well, you know, we see that um, that you took college algebra and you failed twice. 
Um, well, yeah, that was kind of a error. And, uh, and they're like, we also see that you, um, the teacher dropped you from a golf class. Is that correct? Well, technically that's true. The, the teacher and I didn't really see eye to eye on what time the class should start. And uh, I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, the other thing we have is a question about your high school transcripts. Um, we, you know, it's weird because it says you started high school in 88 and you graduated in 92. That's so weird because normally, like most people that start in 88 graduate in 91. And, and yet yours is five years, not four. And I'm like, yeah, that's odd. So this must be some kind of mystery, you know, and they're like, are you sure that's really the answer you're going to go with? And I'm like, uh, yeah, I went five years. All right. That's the way it goes. And uh, so anyway, so they, it was it was a bit embarrassing as they uh, and, and here's the thing. Uh, and they did accept me. And then I told them I didn't want to go. So haha. so uh, <laughs> now here's the thing. Uh, when we talk about because when this passage opens in verse 21, He says, but now the righteousness of God um, apart from the law is revealed. And this is kind of like the big climactic scene in this chapter. Paul has been building up. He says in the beginning of Romans, I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation. And then he backs up and he talks about the wrath of God. And then he says everybody's under wrath, right, in chapter 2. And then he says nobody seeks after God. Nobody's actually doing the right thing. And this is where now Paul comes to the crescendo here. Um, and now he's going to spend some time writing this crescendo in the next few chapters. But here's the thing that happens. This is now like the big aha moment in the book of Romans where he says, but now there is a righteousness of God that apart from the law that's been revealed. And that um, being that the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ. But here's the thing. When we talk about the term righteousness in our culture, we, we, it has a very negative connotation. The reason it has a negative connotation is uh, because it's associated with, you know, people talk about, oh, you're so righteous. And it's like it, 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 when someone uses the word righteous, it almost becomes um, synonymous with the term self-righteous. And um, but I want you to think of righteousness in this case, like how the Bible talks about it as like a performance record. Uh, righteousness is like the transcripts that you're turning in to say, if my transcripts are righteous, I will be accepted. If my resume is righteous, I will get the job that, that, that I want and the position that I want. So it's this idea that um, righteousness is, is this thing that will open doors for me uh, in life. So when we talk about how a person is saved, how a person is forgiven, accepted by God, goes to heaven, it's all about righteousness. In a Jewish culture, um, to this day, righteousness is about keeping the law to the very best of your ability. Because if you don't keep the law, you're, you're not going to make it. And yet, here's the thing. God gives the law, and then he sets up a sacrificial system, because here's the idea. Nobody can keep it. And that's what he says there in verse 23. He says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. That is, that we want to keep it, we want to do it, but we're not actually going to do it because it's impossible to do. And so then, then, what's, then what's the deal? And you say, well, yeah, but I'm pretty righteous. Right? I do, I do pretty good. I do pretty well. Well, here's what the Bible says. If we talk about our own righteousness, we don't have any righteousness. The Bible says this in your notes. says we're all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Not to gross you out, but you know what that word literally means? Filthy rags in Hebrew? It means a garment of menstruation. Like you, well, no, I don't want to see that. 
Well, but this, is my, this is what my righteous deeds before God look like. Why? Because we don't have any righteousness. Now, that would leave us in a pretty bad position if that's where God left us. But that's not where God leaves us. Now, but this is what he says. He says now, the, not just righteousness, but the righteousness of God, which is really good. That's been revealed and made available to us, to every person who comes to faith in Christ. It's not about trying harder. It's not about doing better. It's not about trying to fix it or trying. To, no, here's what he says. It's freely available. It's, it's, it's readily available to you if you desire it, if you want it. It's not like, well, I've, if I can just kind of clean myself up, then I can come to God and I can get it. No, nope. not available that way. It has, has nothing to do with human action. But it has everything to do with the actions of Jesus, his work, on the clo- his, um, his work on the cross, his death, his resurrection. Now that is available to us. That's what makes Christianity different from every other religion. Every other religion is trying to show us, well, this is what you need to do to get right with God. This is what you need to do. Christianity is about everything that God has done for us to become right with God. It's not about us doing better. It's about what God has done and that he wants to transform us from the inside out. He's not trying to cause us, here's what you need to do, make these external modifications and then you'll you'll be right with God. No, he says this, God has done everything. And when we really receive that internally, that work of transformation begins and it begins to spread from the inside out. To really understand this, this is what we're going to spend the last couple of minutes talking about. I want to real, I need you to, to define three terms, three theological terms that are talked about in these couple of verses. Now, I know people get weird when it comes, oh, I don't want to learn that. Just can you tell me another funny story? You know, and they get a little weird about like these, um, these, these, uh, like learning theological terms. Now, listen, if you know how to order a drink at Starbucks, uh, you can learn theological terms. By the way, you want to freak somebody out at Starbucks? Try this. Just walk up and say, remember, they sell coffee there. Just, here's what you do. You walk up and you go, Hi. Hey, can I help you? Hi. I'd like a coffee. What? I'd like a coffee. What, 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 what do you mean? What kind of coffee? What size? No, I just, I just want a coffee. You know, anywhere else in the world you go and you want a coffee, they're going to give you one. You go there and these people will melt down. They will short circuit. If you just say, I would like a coffee. But, but if you say, well, no, I don't really understand. Well, well what I mean is... Um, uh, can I have a decaf iced triple uh, triple grande uh, vanilla two percent extra whip three splenda upside down white mocha? Oh well, why didn't you say that? It just would have saved us so much time. And, and right, and this is, it's a whole thing. so I'm going to give you. So if you can order at Starbucks, you can grasp theological terms. So I'm going to give you three real quick that, that we need to do because we will not understand. Really, what's happening in salvation, we will not understand it until we really grasp these three words. And I'll give them to you quickly. Uh, the first is this, justified or justification. Justification is the act of declaring guilty people innocent. It's declaring guilty people innocent. It's a word that comes out of the courts in that day. Now, it's not just making someone righteous or treating someone as righteous. Justification means that God declares us righteous. He makes us as though we had never sinned in the first place. In fact, if you really want to understand the term justified, just put some dashes in there. Just dash if I'd never sinned. That's what he does when he justifies us. It's kind of like what happens at my house when um, I came home one evening and uh, I, there's a bathroom right, right by our front door by the kids' rooms. And um, I walked over this before my son was born and um, the towel, the, the towel little rack, the towel bar was on the ground. 
and there's like these two giant holes in the drywall. And I'm like, Carrie, what happened? She goes, why don't you go ahead and ask Mia that question? And so I walk into her room and she's playing and I'm like, Mia, what happened in the bathroom? She's like, Bobby, I don't know. And I'm like, did you see what happened? She says, yes. I'm like, what happened? She says, Bobby, I don't know what happened. I was hanging on it and then it fell on the ground. And then I walked away. I don't know. And I'm like, seems to me like you got a pretty good beat on what happened. Now, so, but she used to like to hang on stuff. And so I've got, you know, we have like these little uh, tie backs, like where the drapes are in, in our, uh, like in our dining room. And, um, and so she would hang on those and then like rip them out of the wall. So like if you go to our house, you know, if you, and you get like the, the light is in a certain angle, you can kind of see where I've replaced a piece of drywall and then, you know, done all the, you know, all the crazy stuff to try to fix it and repaint it. And you'd be like, oh, yeah, I can kind of see a little bit there where that was. And uh, and here's the thing is that some that's not justification It's kind of patching up or covering up or painting over it. That's not justification. Justification is what would happen is if I just said, you know what, I'm just going to remove this panel altogether and put a brand new one so that you, it would be just as if it had never happened. Because the whole key is this. When I told you that the law can't do that. All the law can do is cover. That's all the law can do. What justification is, is that God says, listen, when you come to Jesus for salvation, it's, it's that he, he forgives you, he justifies you, he declares you and I righteous. That's why the Bible says this. It says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The second one is this, is the term redemption. Redemption is the act of buying something back. Um, how many of you have used a coupon in your life, if I can ask that? All right, 30% of you. Guys, you need to buy the Sunday paper. You save all kinds of money in there. Um, now, if you've, if you've ever used a coupon, uh, now, here's what happens. If you if you use a coupon, you understand what redemption is. Now, sometimes here's what we think. We say, oh, I have a coupon, and then I will go and I will redeem it. You don't actually redeem a coupon. You use a coupon. You present it. That's why if you read it, it says, please present this. It doesn't say redeem it. You present it. And you know what? The person who redeems it is the store. So let's say you have a coupon for a dollar off on who knows what. And you go to Target and you want to buy one of those. You present it to them and they redeem it. They actually take it back and they, they, they give you a certain amount of money to take the coupon back. That's what redemption is all about. It's about paying a price so that you can, you can purchase something back. It's a term that comes to us from the slave markets. In that time in, in ancient Greece, in the ancient world, where you would uh, pay a certain price to buy, back, uh, to buy back a slave. Now listen, redemption means this, that Jesus bought you at the cross, through his blood, he bought you and me. It says this in 1 Corinthians, it says, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And the last term is this, propitiation. And this is this, the act of turning away wrath. It's the act of turning away wrath. Jesus died in our place so we could be reconciled to God. He was the propitiation. He was the means by which wrath was diverted. He took the wrath so that we could experience the grace, the freedom, and the love and reconciliation with the Father. The Apostle John would say it this way in 1 John, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. 
You see, sometimes we have a picture, and here's why these, these terms are so important. Is sometimes we have this idea of God where God is, is totally upset, and Jesus is the one kind of calming him down and keeping him from flying off the handle or something, and that's not the case. Um, if you notice in the passage, it says in verse uh, 25, it says, whom God set forth as a propitiation. The Father is the one who set all of this into motion. Now, the point of all of this, when it comes to knowing God, is that God is the one who pursued you. God is the one who sacrificed for you. God is the one who sought you so that you and I could experience the grace and love of God. And that's not the idea that many of us have of God. Many of us have this idea of God that God is this cosmic killjoy with this galactic baseball bat in his hand waiting for us to get out of line so he can club us with it. That's not God. That's a caricature and a distortion of of who God is. And many of us, if we don't believe that about God, we believe that God is just a bigger version of our dad. And some of us, you know, maybe you grew up with a dad and your dad never gave you any kind of approval. Nothing was ever good enough. And so you have this thing about God. and It's like, I'm just going to get better. I'm going to do better. I'm going to get better. I'm going to do better. And thinking that I'm, I'm never going to be able to measure up because nothing is ever good enough. Listen, can I tell you something about the God of the Bible? The God of the Bible is not a bigger version of your dad. He is the perfection of what our father is supposed to be. So no matter how good of a dad or lack thereof you had, our father, our heavenly father is the perfection of what a father is supposed to be. He's done everything. And he accepts you on the basis of the cross because he loves you. Many of us think of the cross and the love of God as like this abstract truth. But can I tell you something that it's a present reality? Uh, One of my favorite authors, um, a guy by the name of A.W. Tozer, he, he, he wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, which is one of my favorite books. And um, in, in the first chapter, he says this, this a really important line. He says that he says, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. The reason why that's the case, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you, is because that idea and understanding will shape everything in your life. It will, it will shape who, what you believe about yourself what you believe about other people, what you believe about your past, what you believe about your present, your future, what you believe about your relationships, uh, what you believe about your... Everything is, is, is affected by what you think about when you think about God. That's why when we talk about knowing God, we have to know who God really is. And here's who God really is. God loved you so much that he sent his son into the world to die the most horrific of death. So that he could rise again from the dead and offer salvation and grace and forgiveness and reconciliation for us. Um, You know what that means when when you and I embrace the reality of God's love and, and redemption? It means you don't have to spend your whole life trying to earn God's love or anybody else's. Because you've already got it. And next time you think, like, well, this per, you know, do, do I, have to, I, have to, I have to earn love? Listen, it's, it, then, then the, the, the person whose love you're trying to earn is not from God. Because God doesn't withhold his love. He freely gives it to us. And the cross, the gospel, is the picture of that. It means you don't have to wonder if you have worth or value. Because the cross, the gospel, shows us that we have ultimate worth and ultimate value. Because God was willing to send his son to die a horrific death for the pur- purpose of redeeming us. Of justifying us. So that he could be the propitiation, the, the substitute for us to experience life with him. A little more closer to home. 
um, those of you that are married, the reason why this is so huge for us is because sometimes when we're married, we're expecting our spouse to do something for us, to make us happy, and to, to, to bring us some kind of fulfillment, completion, satisfaction, joy, that, listen, marriage was never meant to do. And so we will put pressure and more pressure and more pressure and more pressure to the point where we will break the relationship. And here's why. Because essentially, and we would never say it this way, but this is what we're essentially saying. This person is supposed to be my savior. And they haven't lived up to being a savior. It's because they're not a savior. It's because your spouse needs a savior the same way you need a savior. And you have a savior. His name is Jesus. And if you can lean on him instead of leaning on your spouse, here's what you'll find. You will find a a relationship that is much happier, much more fulfilling, much more rewarding, and is filled with much more joy. You see, the point of this is simply this, is that life does not make sense until you view it through the cross of Jesus. Life doesn't make sense until you embrace the cross. Until you embrace the gospel. Until then, you will spend your whole life spinning your wheels, trying to earn something that's freely available to you and to me. And so if you're here today and you say, I've never known that, then maybe today the reason God brought you here is for you to begin a relationship with God. And as we close in prayer, you can, um, in the quietness of your own heart, call out to God. And just say, God, I want to come to you. I'm asking that you forgive me. Because I want to know you. And um, if you do make that decision and pray that prayer, on the back of the connection card that you filled out earlier, it says, my next step is, and it says, there's a box, it says, begin a relationship with Jesus. You check that off, and I'll send you a book that I wrote. Um, I became a Christian, um, uh, in two weeks it's going to be uh, 19 years, I think, um, or 18 years. And um, there were so many things I didn't know. And, I, and what I wanted to do was, uh, a couple years ago, I wanted to write a book for those who just make a decision to follow Jesus and say, this is the book I wish someone would have given me. To say, you made the most important decision of your life, the reason for which you were created. What do I do now? And um, in the book, I just try to lay out some simple, some simple decisions that I made um, in, in, in kind of a clumsy way, but um, and what I want to do is kind of maybe take the clumsiness out of it for you and just share some four decisions that I made that absolutely impacted my life. And the reason I'm walking with God today, 18 years later, um, is because of some of these decisions that I made by God's grace. And so if you say, that's the decision I want to make, that's, that's, that's what I got to do. Those of us who are here that are Christians, listen, um, until we really understand the gospel and embrace it in its fullness and say, I know who God is. Not because of anything else. I know who God is because I look at the cross and it tells me who God is. Then we'll experience the kind of life that God has for us. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your love, for your grace. Thank you um, that you don't just allow us to live in a, with an idea of you, a distortion of you but instead you've given us your word that we might know you in reality and fullness and so we ask god that we might live in such a way and experience your love your grace the redemption that you've given to us 
through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.